Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Oddsport.com and Oddsport Magazine, I'm Stefan Macklin, and this is the Oddsport National Podcast. It's Wednesday the 21st of April, and the current issue of Oddsport has been on the shelves a few days now. Hopefully by now our subscribers will have enjoyed their free 28-page national racing supplement. So today we're bringing you another edition of the Oddsport National Podcast. I'm joined by GP Racing Editor Ben Anderson. He's fresh from a track testing the McLaren 720S GT3. And also on the show today is Odd Sports National Editor Stephen Licorice. Ben, you got the chance to drive this car a couple of weeks ago. What were your impressions of it? Uh, good to be on the podcast. I was seriously, seriously impressed, actually. I don't have a great deal of GT experience during my years as Odd Sports uh, tame racing driver, I guess you'd say. So I went in with a fairly open mind, but I wasn't expecting an awful lot, truthfully. You know, my understanding of GT3 rules was obviously high performance, but road cars really adapted for the racetrack. But what I found when I drove this car was something much closer to a pure thoroughbred racing car, really. The performance of the chassis itself, it blew me away. It felt much more like uh, an LMP3 car, something with, you know, high downforce sports car or even single seater DNA running through it rather than this kind of big lazy gt car which is what i was expecting you know something with big power lots of going straight it's not much by way of cornering what i found was really the opposite if anything uh the 720 and mclaren admits this is slightly underpowered compared to some of its competitors in the class but handling wise i mean you can't fault it and the confidence it imbues you with as well especially for someone like me coming in cold you know not much experience in that type of car uh, never having driven it before, it just gives you confidence straight away. So you can get very comfortable and then you can start attacking the circuit, build your confidence and then start exploring the limits of the car. So yeah, really, 
really enjoyable experience. Nice to be out playing because obviously the pandemic has kind of ruined much of that for everybody. I think it's only my second outing in the last year or so, which is crazy for me when I've been doing so much driving before that. Really fun to be out playing, a, a big honour to drive a McLaren. You know, it's not something you get to do every day or even ever in a career. Um, so, yeah, very exciting. Rob Bell, wasn't it, who's a McLaren factory driver who you um, who was also driving the car on the same day? Um, and I guess you had as a you know reference for lap times and, and sort of advice as well. I mean, he's obviously you know driven a range of different McLarens. I mean, did he seem surprised by your reaction at the fact that the GT3 car you know it didn't seem as as lazy as you thought it was going to be in the corners, or or is that sort of the usual reaction that he usually gets from from people? Yeah, it was no surprise to him. I know Rob of old um, from my days on the national beat. He's a good guy to have around. I was I was really just piggybacking uh, McLaren development tests. They were there doing some work on the traction control systems. I even had to sign a contract as a test driver, so I felt very professional. And Rob, yeah, I mean he's a good guy, um, and he explained you know the evolution from the you know MP4 12C days when McLaren started you know venturing into this kind of realm of GT racing through the through the 570 and now the 720, um, really they've worked on um, trying to make the car more driver friendly. Um, I think feedback from the, the the 570 particularly was that it was quite uh, skittish. And so perhaps not so confidence inspiring for the amateur drivers. With this car, Ian Morgan, who heads up um, McLaren's, McLaren Automotives, Motorsport Operations, ex-Red Bull engineering from the days when Vettel was wiping the floor in the world championship, They've really focused on developing this really, really stable platform, usable aerodynamics, not too peaky, right down to the ergonomics of how you sit, the functions on the steering wheel. There's even a traffic light system when you come to the pit lane and you need to slow down to the, the speed limit. It, uh, it gives you a green light when you're at the right speed. So you don't have to think too much about your approach to the speed limit line. All these kind of things, they want the to take as much angst out of the new driver, the inexperienced driver, even you know the the, the amateur driver, the, the guy who's likely to be the slowest in a in a racing scenario, as they can, so that they can just focus on driving as fast as they possibly can. And yeah, it's a it's a clever approach. Um, he, Rob explained it as when you're in a BOP formula like like British GT, you could develop you know some more power from the engine or find a clever tweak that might give you X percent of lap time. But of course you're then going to get handed a bunch of lead to slow you down. So what they've tried to do is focus on all these little bits and bobs that, um, as I say, make the driver feel more comfortable. So if a driver can get closer more consistently to their 100% of personal performance, you're more likely to do better over a race distance than if you give that same driver a slightly faster car, but one that's harder to handle. Stephen, I'll bring you in here. Obviously, um, you know, McLaren for a lot of people you know fans of motorsport is going to be synonymous with formula one you know they've had great success in that but they've obviously branched out into you know other forms of, of motorsport throughout history gt racing is one of them and like i say over the last few years you know they've had had sort of great success haven't they in british gt this year actually marks 10 years since mclaren decided to return to the gt racing arena after their spell away following the success of the mclaren f1 GT car. In that time, they've had three different versions of the GT3 as well as a GT4 car, and all of them have achieved varying amounts of success. And as you mentioned, the latest GT3 car that Ben drove 
over um, a, a couple of weeks ago. That made its debut in British GT in 2019. And it was its first actual race in GT. Didn't get off to the, to the best of starts because it, they had to withdraw from the opening meeting of the, the 2019 season uh, because they had some various electrical problems. Uh, but from then on, it was one of the real sort of front runners throughout the championship. And despite, in effect, missing that opening weekend of the season, um, Rob Bell and Sean Balfe ended up finishing just five points off the title. So if they'd have been able to get even a small number of points from that um, opening event, it would have been a very different story. So that's just one example of how the latest McLaren has been really successful right from the start. And I, I guess you, you got a sense of that, Ben, from when you were driving it, just why it was such a, a good car uh, right from the v- beginning after they've learnt from the, the sort of work they've done on the previous models. Yeah, it just really looks after you that the car has no vices. I mean, Rob was talking about this to me, you know, as a, as a racing driver, especially in his situation when you're a professional and you do it for a living, you're never happy. There's always little things that you can nitpick. And of course, I mean, as I say, they were there developing the traction control system. But I mean, if you take that, usually with these types of cars, you'd understand the traction traction control system to be there to kind of help your less experienced drivers, you know, avoid major incidents when they plant the throttle, et cetera. But Rob said with this car, they've tried to, to make those tools really about tire management. So again, looking at overall performance of the car, dial the system in to, to look after the tyres through a race rather than help you out as of a bad situation. All these little things, they've, they've tried to focus on driver performance, not so much um, driver aids. It's a very, very refined package. I mean, I haven't driven earlier iterations of the car. I don't have a reference against the, the 570 to compare to. Um, but what I can say is I felt confident straight away. The 25 or so laps I did, um, I was able to, to build up my pace progressively um, and then by the time I was warmed up, you know, starting to lean on the car, getting it to move around a bit, it was all very progressive. I never felt like I was going to have a big moment. And this is the kind of thing that really inspires confidence in amateur drivers. Um, and that's what you need, you know, if you're trying to attract a new customer and they, they have a small window to, to test the car and, and compare it to others. You need to leave a, a good impression uh, in the first instance. And this car undoubtedly does that. I can definitely attest to what you're saying there. I, I, I was really lucky and got the chance to drive the um, McLaren 620R, which is basically the road-going version of the 570S GT4, and then the 765 LT Evolution, which is, uh, sorry, an evolution of McLaren's 720S. Obviously, my experience is, is much less than yours, Ben, but um, I think sort of spending half a day in each. Obviously, I had a you know driver coach alongside me, a McLaren factory driver, but even so, just the, it inspires you to sort of be able to drive and to push and to find that limit. And I know that when I was speaking to them, that was sort of the goal that they wanted to achieve with the McLarens is the fact that, yes, it is a racing machine, but they want people who necessarily don't have that race, that real experience to be able to jump in the car. And something you picked up on earlier as well was, was the ease and accessibility as well. Um, so you mentioned about the the lights coming into the pits, for example, and the engineers have just really looked into every aspect, things from raising the central console so that when you're strapped into the car, you can actually reach the controls um, and just every part of the car to perfection, almost. It's a very ergonomic machine, which it sounds a very boring word, but you know when you're when you're jumping into a car for the first time, there's so much that can be not quite right especially when the car's not made for you you know the seating position will be slightly awkward you feel like you don't have great visibility the steering wheel 
can't get it close enough to you or far enough away. As you say, the console maybe is out of reach and a bit awkward. You need somebody to push buttons for you to get the thing going. You have none of these problems with this car. You jump in, and I have a pretty gangly frame. I'm not ideally built for for racing. I'm a bit too tall, a bit too leggy. Uh, it's often been difficult for me to jump into cars, various cars down the years for these track tests and, and get comfortable straight away. And, of course, that's a distraction then when you're out on the track. But in the McLaren, I felt like it was it was made for me. You've got – this is the closest thing to the to what you'd imagine in a road car, really. The, the, the seat is on runners. You can move it back and forwards quite easily. You can move the pedal box back and forwards. You can move the steering wheel up and down. These are normal things, but the way you do them is so easy in this car. Plus, you have all the controls that you would need on the steering wheel. You can start the car from the steering wheel. Again, that's quite unusual. They've tried to think of, as Rob put it, put as much functionality into the driver controls as you can. So you just don't have to think about doing it. From the moment I sat in the car, I felt so ready to drive it. I could see really well, had almost the perfect seating position. That's so rare. And that just helps you get comfortable straight away, feel confident to attack the circuit. Um, And again, it helps just leave you with that favorable impression, which, you know, when you're trying to attract customers into your, your racing program is so important. Do you think you'll be getting a call up this year to race in British GT with the team? Or? <laughs> well, the guy managing the test, uh, Carl Patman, uh, he did say, actually, oh, he made the same joke. Oh, will, will, will we be seeing you in British GT this year? Uh, and I said, well, I think I'm probably a few hundred thousand pounds short of uh, the necessary uh, entry requirement. But yeah, driving wise, I mean, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a million miles away from Rob's pace. I mean, that's the idea, I suppose. They wanted to create a car that, you know, amateurs i mean you know it's not like i'm a novice i've got plenty of experience in racing so i know the fundamentals they want people to be able to jump in and and get to a competent pace fairly quickly in this form of racing your bronze graded or amateur driver is always your weakest link so the the more comfortable you can make that driver the faster you can bring them up to speed and the more consistency you can instill in them at that speed the the better you're going to get on in the races so um, you can see how that mentality underpins everything McLaren's done with the car. And the result is, you know, a, a, a very capable package that's very much worthy of taking on the kind of, you know, bigger beast, if you like, of of the GT racing scene. Definitely. Well, hopefully people are going to, you know, enjoy the, you know, reading the article, you know, and your experiences of the car. And, um, you know, another article. Anyway, that's the main thing. But, um, yeah, yeah, another another article then that we've got. I have to be honest on a, on a concept and a, and a, a you know a, I want a series um, you know that I I'd actually not heard of before. Um, Stephen had had written the article and, and sent it across, and it's called Super Superlap Scotland. Um, Stephen, what exactly is that, and can you know just explain the concept of it? Yes, yeah, so we're talking about something at the very opposite end of the spectrum of compared to where British GT is and where you would find the, the GT3 McLaren that, that Ben drove. Superlap Scotland is essentially a sort of stepping stone between driving on a track day and actually competing in a, in a race series. So what it involves is uh, an SLS event, features a, a warm-up session and a practice session in the morning where drivers get the chance to sort of get used to, to the track and get re- sort of ready build themselves up then it's a qualifying session where they have about 15 minutes to to try and set the fastest time possible and then it's all down to a final uh, super lap shootout where they've got just the one lap they have a have an out lap and then they have to have their one time lap and the winner is the person who sets the fastest lap in on that one lap so all that pressure sort of builds up over the course of the day and it all 
gets that sort of crescendo of the final superlap shootout. And there's a whole variety of different classes that form the championship, all sorts of different types of car, right from road cars all the way up to what they call the pro extreme class, which is for much more track focused cars like radicals, for example. And the whole idea behind the series is to make those people taking part in track days realize that actually the next step to competing on track it's not that far away it's not that distant some people who take part in track days are perhaps wary of the fact that it's very different compared to actually taking part in a race whereas what superlap scotland does is it sort of fills that that middle ground and drivers aren't competing against anyone else on track directly there's no risk of crashing into anyone or having to worry about huge repair bills from someone taking you out through no fault of your own but it still teaches you the basics the importance of particularly on qualifying getting used to you uh, competing on the track and setting the best times and it's just a really good sort of introduction to motorsport and one of the interesting um, sort of case studies from it again coming back to British GT is that the 2019 British GT champion Graham Davidson he actually started out in Superlap Scotland that was the first bit of motorsport that he did he was previously a track day driver never really thought about making that jump across into racing was always a, a little bit hesitant about it thought of the costs would be huge he didn't want to damage his car but Superlap Scotland uh, sort of opened him up to that idea it sh- showed him what was possible and gave him the confidence to then progress onwards and he's obviously done very well and moved up the ranks through to British GT so obviously not, not everyone who, who starts out in the series is going to be a future British GT champion at, and race at Spa or various other 24-hour races but it shows that what a good sort of starting point it can be and it can help you on that journey track days are obviously very popular and um you know i think that was the first activity at racetracks that was allowed to you know resume before even race meetings because of the covid19 pandemic and i think it's also an area that motorsport uk is sort of looking to try and bring people in from you know as um registered license holders as well you know they they understand that there's perhaps people there who want to make that jump um, but like you say, it's not always that easy, is it, to, to, to make the jump from, um, you know, track days to full-fledged racing. You know, there's a whole set of regulations, both for the car and, you know, driving. Um, ben, obviously, you know, you've done plenty of, of national racing yourself, I think, in Formula V. Um, how was it that you sort of got involved with motorsport? Did you uh, have someone who helped you get into it? Because it is quite a daunting thing to actually want to get involved with if you, if you don't know what you're doing, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. I mean, I didn't get involved through Superlap Scotland. It sounds to me like a sort of uh, local version of Time Attack. Same sort of concept, but focused around Knock Hill. They do have an, a way around at Croft, but yeah, uh, sort of a, a Scottish version. My story is kind of a bit, I guess, boring and typical in the sense that uh, I did I did kart racing when I was a kid. I was fortunate enough to do that from the age of 11, um, supported by my my father who raced, uh, he built and raced Caterhams in the mid-90s. That's how he got bitten by the motorsport bug and as a, a, a young lad watching that happen around me going to races with him you know that got me kind of more and more interested so yeah we went go-karting not to any particularly high level obviously I had aspirations when I started um, but you know they were shut down fairly quickly by a uh, you know, lack of budget yeah we did club level kart racing and I got into super karts and that was the bridge between uh, kart racing and 
long circuit car racing um, because we were doing, you know, meetings at places like Thruxton, uh, Pembrey, you know, supporting car race meetings, often Formula Renault, maybe Formula 3 sometimes. Um, and they were insanely fast, those things. We did 250 supercarts for, for many years, but they were also incredibly dangerous. The last meeting I remember doing, which would have been 2006, I think, uh, Brands Hatcher, a, a racer was killed in a compression at Paddock Hill Bend. There was a T-boning incident and it happened just behind me and just in front of my sister who was also racing. Uh, and for my my dad on the pit wall, that was a bit too much to handle. Um, that experience that I had from racing consistently, having a license, kind of allowed me to explore other opportunities within autosport and test many cars. So I've been fortunate to, to drive or test. I think I'm close to 120 now in my career, um, which obviously is a very unusual thing. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate. Um, but in terms of getting into the sport, I mean, it was just a gradual progression from watching it, having someone in the family who did it cheaply, trying some indoor karting, getting on well with that, enjoying it, wanting to compete and just, you know, step by step progressing from there. So I'm not your kind of typical, I guess, super lap Scotland or, you know, track day enthusiast who's who's got a high performance car, wants to see what it can do on a track and then somehow transfer that to racing. I've come from a much more traditional, I guess, professional style of progressing through the junior karting categories and then trying to to break into lower level single seater racing and then eventually stop chasing that dream and and try to grow up a little bit but not too much you know before i joined autosport i'd done some indoor karting but that was it and through the job and through work i'd been able to do a few race meetings pass my arts test as well and i have to say you know if it wasn't for the fact that you know i had people who had already you know been and got the license or had done a race meeting you know, for me, even though I, you know, obviously would wanted to go racing, I think it would have been very difficult to know exactly where to start. So I think, you know, this Superlapse Scotland, um, you know, for, for track day enthusiasts is a, you know, a really good idea. And um, Stephen, how many, approximately sort of how many people are registered in, and taking part in it? Because it's obviously been going for a few years yeah, as well, so hasn't they, it? they first launched it in 2013. And back then they had sort of 12 or 15 or low t- numbers of in the 20s. Uh, whereas now they've got about, sort of 80 to 90 drivers that take part it's normally about 65 per event uh, so it's really sort of expanded and grown over that time and introduced a whole number of, of drivers into competitive motorsport that perhaps wouldn't have otherwise uh, been competing and as we were saying it's always organizers always looking for for new drivers new competitors to to take part anything like Superlap Scotland or like perhaps for example the the track day trophy and track day championship that MSV run anything that can help encourage people to make that step across into actual competitive motorsport is obviously enormously beneficial. Stephen do you just want to sort of run through the other features and columns and tech focuses that we've we've got in the first that's suppose yes 2021. So, so one of the pieces in the, in the supplement is a, a column from nadine lewis who is the chair of the british motorsports marshals club I and mean, she's talking about how marshalling has been affected by the pandemic the different changes that have been brought in some of the positives and negatives that are sort of associated with that um and we also get under the skin of a pickup truck uh competition 
truck uh, to sort of look at the, the technical details of that, what that involves. And uh, Stefan, you spoke to Danny Winstanley, who is a very successful catering racer, a bit about his career, haven't you? As you say, caterings is you know what he's he's best known for. But I was very surprised actually to find out just all the different types of cars that he you know he'd raced and. You know, he's only 28 at the minute and he seems to have been around for, for a long time in, in national motorsport. And he had a real baptism of fire when he started because at the age of 16, he was in the TVR European Challenge and there he made his debut in. And I think as anyone knows, a TVR is not, not perhaps the easiest car to, uh, to start in. But um, he won on his debut in 2009 at Cadwell Park. And since then, he's, you know, he's, he's gone from strength to strength and mainly Caterham. So he won the 420R title in 2017 and 2018. And he's taken a bit of a back step from racing now. And um, he's actually running his, his, his own team as well in, in Caterhams. But unsurprisingly, he's had success with that as well. John Burns taken back-to-back titles with that car. And um, just from speaking to him, um, you know, I think if anybody's ever been and watched a Caterham race, you know, more often than not, uh, you know, they're absolutely fantastic to watch because usually there's about 10 to 15 cars in the lead battle, slipstream thrillers. It is a brick move, moving through the air. Ben, have, have you ever have you ever dr- driven or raced the case room? Because, I mean, they look like a lot of fun, but quite a handful as well, especially in, in races. Yeah, I did, did a round of the 300R Super Light Championship, which I think was the forerunner to the 420 category that you, you mentioned. Um, this would have been around... 2015 time i think uh, we supported british gt on the the silverstone grand prix circuit so yeah i got to have two slip streaming thrillers on one of the greatest racetracks to race on in the world enormous one obviously they're a bit slow on a, a circuit like silverstone but fantastic for slip streaming and so yeah i had some great races and was involved in in the lead battle as well like you say usually encompassing sometimes 10 to 15 cars. Sometimes cage racing gets criticised for that, you know, that it's all a bit artificial in the sense that it's kind of irrelevant until you get down to the last lap often. But I don't really subscribe to that. I think the, the slipstreaming element is just another another part of it that you have to manage. And there's a lot of tactics involved in positioning your car and um, trying not to be in certain positions on certain laps or certain corners um, to get ahead. So I, I like the fact that, you know, the the aerodynamics or lack of aerodynamic efficiency keeps the keeps the racing really close it's exciting you know you, you never really have a boring lap in a caterham race very rarely so yeah a lot of fun was danny in that race if you were in the lead battle and he was in it i imagine uh, he wasn't too far away <laughs> i don't think i don't think he was in the category at that time i think oh, uh, right. yeah i think he came in a couple of years later i remember from my days on the national desk um his name from the from the tvr categories obviously it's not the not not the same as the tuscan challenge from the the heyday of the 90s but i guess it's the, the successor to that um but no he wasn't he wasn't in caterings at that point um yeah. i i would have remembered i'm pretty pretty sure um he came around a couple of years later he's done so much to be fair i mean he, he's done occasional rounds of brick car gt cup uh the civic cup as well um, and more recently, he did the Lotus Elise Trophy last year. He did a couple of rounds, and unsurprisingly, was you know on the pace and and won and won a few races. I think his intention is to um, you know to be out this year full time and um, you know and competing in that. And um, you know, looking looking at this year, I mean, um, obviously a bit later than planned, but we finally had some national race meetings, which is great. And not only that as well, but the grids have been absolutely fantastic. I mean, I think we all. You know, everyone in national motorsport feared for the, you know, um, 
what the state of national motorsport was going to be once it resumed after COVID, you know, whether people were going to be coming out and taking part in races. But, um, you know, the, the positive seems to be that they are, you know, people want to get out. They've perhaps saved a bit of money over the last 12 months by, you know, not being able to go abroad on holidays or, you know, that kind of thing. Grids have been good, good, Stephen, so far. Yes, over the, the sort of first couple of weeks of their of being race meetings, there's been some tremendous grids and that includes... Uh, some categories from the 750 Motor Club, which had grids in of over 40 cars. And, and even at the Masters Historic Race Meeting at Donington a couple of weeks ago, a club that traditionally attracts a lot of drivers over from Europe to its races, uh, still had some fantastic entries there as well, like the, the Gentleman GT Drivers race uh, that had over 40 cars. And just last weekend at Alton Park, the Classic Sports Car Club, again, had some massive grids. So it's been really, really encouraging to see that um, the, the strong amount of interest that there was over the course of last year has continued into this year. There's uh, organisers are reporting a, a huge amount of pent-up demand. And it's quite interesting, um, just uh, in the space of a, f- of a few days after the Classic Sports Car Club opened uh, entries for their Donington Park uh, meeting, uh, which is a at the end of May, so over two months away at the time that they opened them, uh, they had 378 entries received in just a few days for that, which is, just shows how much interest there is from competitors to get back out on track at the moment. So obviously the big question is how long that continues. Inevitably, when this sort of situation, there's a lot of pent-up demand, people desperate to get back out on track. But if that continues over the course of the, the season, and fingers crossed that is a, a full season this time rather than the, the sort of part season we had last year, uh, then that would be really, really good to see. Ben, obviously, you know, you've been on the national desk and grids fluctuate in, you know, the sizes of them. It's nothing new. I mean, are you quite surprised that grids seem to be as strong as they are at national meetings so far this year? Well, first, I need to apologise to Dave Robinson, who uh, won the 2015 Caterham Superlight R300 Championship, because now my uh, adult brain is starting to remember more clearly what happened during my outing. I mean, he dominated that weekend. No one really touched him. So when I said I was in the lead battle, I probably should have said, actually, I was in the battle for all the runner-up positions behind him, because he absolutely stormed off into the distance. Um, But anyway, as to your question, I'm not surprised uh, in the sense that people who do club racing, you know, are very passionate about what they do. They devote nearly all of their time, money, energy to it. So as soon as the opportunity comes up to go again, they're gonna they're gonna take it. The challenge is probably greater for the industry around that, you know, the people who've set up racing teams or prep shops, businesses around UK motorsport, the less time you have in terms of events running, the less business there is to be done. I think at higher levels, you'll have a challenge in terms of people not being able to justify spending the money. We started the the show talking about British GT. Now, that's a category that relies on usually very successful businessmen bringing their private wealth to race cars. And many of those people are not going to be able to justify spending those sorts of sums when in all likelihood they've had to furlough staff or even lay some off as the effects of the pandemic are, are being felt. And I imagine there'll be more of that to come because once these kind of extraordinary government schemes begin to get rolled back and the tap gets turned off, you're going to see a much greater economic shock 
both for people at the bottom end and people at the top end, and that will have a knock-on effect on racing. So I'd imagine for now, we're still living in that kind of middle ground where some of the pain has been deferred. So I'd imagine the first part of this season will be fine, maybe the whole season, because by the time the UK furlough scheme ends, it will be September, I think. So maybe you'll start to see a slowdown in the in the final months, and I'd imagine next season will be the tough one at the lower end, probably again another tough one at the higher end as well. Well, one of the things that the pandemic um, still affected and still prevented is um, spectators being able to go and and you know witness these events. And as you mentioned, there's a very passionate and loyal following people in national motorsport, and you know they've not been able to to go to events. They were able to go for a few events last year. It was sort of on and off, wasn't it, Stephen? You know, um, spectators being allowed. But as as things stand at the minute under the government's guidelines, spectators aren't going to be allowed to go to events until at least the 17th of May, which is obviously, you know, another month down the line. And that's at the earliest. You know, there's absolutely no guarantee that they're going to be able to go after that. So fans still can't get into these venues. It's not just a case of spectators not being allowed, but across the country, in Wales and Scotland, national motorsport, you know, hasn't really sort of restarted either, yeah, has it? No, absolutely. It's a very important point to make that, yes, motorsport has restarted in England, but it hasn't anywhere else in the UK just yet. And it never really restarted at all in Wales last year. They All that was held in the entirety of 2020 was just one small trial meeting at Anglesey that featured three 750 motor club categories and obviously that's Wales is a hotbed of of rallying and that discipline has been massively affected by the the coronavirus pandemic just because of the nomadic nature of it where different stages are taking place in different areas motorsport has now restarted in England but it's not the case everywhere and particularly in Wales, there's no clear indication yet of exactly when it will be able to restart. For example, one event in May and one event at the start of June have either been cancelled or postponed because there's still this lack of clarity about when events will be allowed to run, which is absolutely bizarre when you consider just a few miles away across the border in England. We had four months worth of racing last year with no major problems at all and obviously we're now back racing again as of the start of april as you also said the spectators are a huge part of race meetings uh, i know last year when i was covering the british touring car championship support series you really noticed the lack of fans there obviously no spectators were allowed at those events for the whole of last year it was very very strange seeing completely empty spectator banks and and the drivers really noticed that too a lot of them said that it just didn't feel like um a touring car event it felt like a a test session um where they were they were racing just because there wasn't that that crowd element that a huge part of those meetings so it is a it's obviously a shame that spectators still won't be allowed and it is the the sort of venue operators that have been hit hardest by this in in some ways but equally we have to remember that this is a, something that's affecting all sports at the moment and okay motorsport has a clear advantage because it's held in these massive circuits where there's huge amounts of area for for people to spectate from um but we have to be very careful about um and this is something that quite a few club chiefs have, have mentioned over the past 12 months really that most sport is not seen as elitist and different from other sports and in some way better than you know, the spectators can go to most sport but they can't go to anything else given the the surrounding climate at the moment and the issues of 
future use of fossil fuels and all sorts of green questions of around motorsport anything that sort of provokes irritation and shows motorsport in a, in a different light compared to the rest of society we have to be really careful with that it's massively disappointing that that spectators aren't allowed to to attend these meetings at the moment but we just have to be be patient like the rest of the the sporting world uh, until things improve and, and we can have the, those fans back well that's our podcast for today but before we go here's what you can see right now on autosport plus James Newbold writes about the lesson football's would-be wreckers could learn from racing as he looks back in detail at the Super League Formula Series of 2008-2011. He compares that situation to what happened when the six Premier League clubs all pulled out of the proposed Super League. Uri asks what Mark Marquez has to do to get back to his best in MotoGP. And our sister title, GP Racing, looks at how an overwhelming McLaren move has given Ricardo a new verve. We think it's the best motorsport writing out there, but judge for yourself with half-price access. New subscribers who sign up today can use promo code PODCAST during checkout to save 50% off their first payment. Go to watersport.com slash plus and click sign in at the top of the page. Then use promo code PODCAST for that 50% discount. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back soon. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. AT&T Fiber presents a straightforward moment. Your wine? Thanks. I'll pretend I know what I'm doing before saying it's good. And I'll pretend I don't know you're pretending. Are you a gagillionaire? Yeah, I have AT&T Fiber. The straightforward pricing has inspired me to be more straightforward. Me too. Ugh, this wine. I'll fetch you a better one. Straightforward is better. No equipment fees, no data caps, no price increase at 12 months. Live like a gagillionaire with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Sports Social Podcast Network.